Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. I'm a Chicago-based 33-year-old, you know, accidental doormat entrepreneur, author, pop culture commentator, podcast host, just trying to get by providing my thoughts toward various pop culture topics, millennial lifestyle topics. I talk about nostalgia a lot. I talk about Mormon mommy bloggers a lot. I don't know. I'm just uh, podcasting my way through these trying times and uh, at the very least hoping to keep you company. And I'm so glad you're here for another episode. This is a series I do called Kate Lila. Poorly named after my favorite uh, adult contemporary radio host, Delilah, who with a dulcet soothing tone would give people advice while she played music, took calls. I just really enjoyed listening to her on this uh, station called Light 98, where I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. And um, I try to do the same every quarter or so where I answer uh, listener voicemails. I kind of will pull a random amalgam from uh, the Google Voice app, throw them in here, and uh, make an episode out of it. And today's is an interesting one. I'm coming here after the fact. We go over a lot of topics from... um, Dixie D'Amelio to grocery shopping to, um, you know, fulfilling your purpose against what society's asking you about. And I nearly cry. At one point, I play a sound clip of something I accidentally recorded of Greg and I talking. And I don't know, know if he's ever made a debut on this podcast. I have, we did trivia like years ago on Patreon. But um, yeah, you'll hear a clip from my husband. I mean, this, yeah, th- these episodes are actually some of my favorite to record. I don't, I'm not qualified to give like meaningful mental health advice by any stretch, but I can give you my two cents based on my life experience and perspective. And I'm honored that anybody would ever come to me wanting advice about anything, pop culture or otherwise. I also meander about music videos for like 20 minutes and do a detailed analysis of Fiona Apple's Criminal. It's a whole thing. So I hope you'll stick with me for this episode. I'm so grateful that you're here. And instead of, uh, you know, wasting your time with more chatter, let's just get into it, shall we? Hi, Kate. My name is Emily. And I'm calling because I need your help. So long story short, I own a business and we have a TikTok account that has done really well over the past couple of months. But that's important of the story, I promise. So I was scrolling through my notifications the other day on TikTok and I happened to see that Dixie D'Amelio followed me. And now as an almost 30-something-year-old woman, I really don't know how to process that information. Is there etiquette when it goes to this? Do I message her back? Do I send her the product of my company? Do I let it go? All I know is that at 28 years old, I was definitely fangirling over the fact that an 18-year-old on TikTok followed me, and I felt like only you and the best could understand. So please help me figure out how I'm supposed to handle this and uh, address the fact that she followed me. Wow, 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 wow. There are, there are a few times in a person's life where they're blessed with a follow uh, as magical as, as one Dixie D'Amelio of sometimes I don't want to be happy and one day, one day, I was really, 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 really sad. Fame. I mean, what a gift, what a life. Uh, you know, I was hard on Dixie at first and I'm still a little bit hard on Dixie given that it is tough when somebody is doing better than you'll ever do in your entire life in one year's time from being a famous person's sister. But my God, do I wish the same upon my own sister. I could only dream of having my coattails be metaphorical, decadent lobster tails people benefit from. 
who are in my wake. Uh, but alas, I am but a measly mid-tier podcaster. Nobody really receives any benefit from knowing me. A girl can dream, a girl can dream. And that's why I'm inspired by Dixie. Because like, I really think that it's so interesting that somebody can do something and then the people around them become interesting just for existing, right? But to be fair, Be Happy was a banger. I was really, 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 really sad, was really, 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 really lyrically poor. Uh, and then Roommates actually is a metaphorical therapy concept I quite like, though it didn't really land it as a song for me. She lives in a huge-ass house I just posted on Instagram today that was honestly shook me to my core for, like, I... I worry for the I worry for people that get fame and fortune at an early age before they have to work toward a career or climb any sort of ladder or jungle gym or like work toward anything where you have to establish yourself that you would have zero tolerance for um like the, the slow nature of most progress of working towards something of not being at the top i worry about the sustainability of that income i worry about if you do sustain the income and you've never really meaningfully worked towards something i worry about your happiness and personal satisfaction uh, i worry about um the, the you know i i know i refer to this often but it's it's i just remember like when you learn about um like in health class drugs and like the nature of like a heroin type substance when you reach these high highs and it essentially destroys your pleasure centers and you have trouble ever reaching that again. Like I think that metaphorically that can happen in different ways throughout life where like things are so effing good really early on before you really have like earned it or can express and experience a level of gratitude that I think comes with um, a, a duration and a level of high effort that you wanted something so badly but when you when things kind of like you're a kid and then something comes pretty easily to you, it's not that you don't deserve it and you can't like over time, you know, it's people it's people aren't worth what they're fundamentally just like worth as people. They're worth the return they're delivering in the marketplace. And if your stock is high, if you are delivering ROI to brands, like if you are worth a certain amount of money and have a certain amount of audience, like I'm not resentful of that. But I uh, you this is not your question, but I have a lot of um confusing thoughts about achieving fame at a young age and I in concerns for these people uh but for their sake I hope it's sustainable and at the very least to have that much money at that age would have been insanely fun and I'm sure I would have made a lot of bad decisions though um but you know in terms of what to do with the follow I've had a couple follows that really rocked my world uh and after the initial shock and excitement that this person cares that you exist uh, you, you know, there's the stages. You're like, well, was it an accident? It was probably an accidental follow. I scroll through things and tap things with my thumb all the time. They're going to figure me out. And then sometimes you occasionally look to see if they still follow you. And then over time, you kind of forget and realize they don't really ever interact with you, but they still follow you. And then you think of all the people you follow and that you don't aren't personally invested in all of them. And that maybe it's not such a big deal after all. And I don't say that to minimize the accomplishment. Rather, I say that to not overthink the interaction you need to have or to reach out immediately. I think that you can comment, you can like, maybe an occasional DM here and there, though TikTok, the DM game isn't as strong. I think I would just rest assured knowing that you have a very popular influencer in your corner who likes what you're doing. I would most certainly, uh, if you're in commerce, if you have a business to consumer product offer to send something um, and see if she responds. Uh, maybe under your same new username on Instagram, interact heavily and see if you can get that same follow going there. Uh, but try, I don't know what industry you're in. Honestly, this would have been a great opportunity for you to, uh, you know, hawk your business name. I probably would have aired it, but kudos to you for not making it about that and just asking a genuine question. 
I can probably find you based on her follow list. But anyway, I'm happy for you. I think that's huge. I think you should send her something and be okay with it. Maybe not, you know, working out. Um, but at the very least, you'll get a message if like one of your mutuals message you, messages you, right? Uh, so she might be able to see it and she might be interested. Like, is it something you would send for a birthday or a function or her next single? I What I learned in the doormat biz is like, your best bet is to make something so highly personalized where it doesn't feel like you are seeking to get publicity. You rather wanted to send something nice that they is meaningful to them. So when I make a phrase or an inside joke or something about somebody's podcast or whatever, they would always thank me. But I feel like when I sent like a generic product without a personalized note, nobody cared. The risk you run, and I've talked to other creators about this, is like making something highly customizable that takes a long time and somebody might not even thank you and it makes you so bitter and makes you feel so differently toward them. But it's kind of, it's often worth the labor just in case they say something. So I would try to milk it to promote yourself. You probably won't be able to forge a friendship, but you at the very least can get a tag and get some more followers. It's the name of the game these days. It's impossible to get followers. So uh, wishing you the best of luck. I'm really excited for you. And please do not tell her that um, at my live shows, I would make a list of things named Dixie ranked best to worst. This was before the chicks changed their name. Um, it was number one was Dixie Chicks. Number two was um, Dixie Cups. Number three was Dixieland Delight, that song that dudes would sing at bars. And it made me laugh because all these bros that were like, you know, it was like juvenile, put your back into it. And people like bent over grinding. And then there'd be a bunch of frat dudes and Sperry's and Critter Shorts being like, white tail buck deer munching on clover it's just it really would change its tune and it was, dixieland delight was always played at the end of the night and it was just a real tonal shift to like chubby old bullfrog munching chubby old groundhog croaking bullfrog that song is wild um and then yeah so it was it was dix it was dixie chicks dixie cups dixieland delight dixie kong uh, daughter-in-law of Donkey. I believe Dixie is, well, Diddy's girlfriend. I don't think they're, they're uh, betrothed uh, by any stretch, but, um, yeah, and then followed by Dixie D'Amelio. Uh, so, yeah, tough ranking, but I might move those things around now if you ask me. Thanks for calling. Hey, Kate, this is Lauren and Aaron from Indianapolis, Indiana, and we were wondering if you could go through your most iconic, or what you think is the most iconic music videos from like the 2000s or 90s and what you think makes an iconic music video. Thanks. Hi, Lauren and Aaron. Thanks for the, the both of you calling me. And Indianapolis is so close to Chicago. Is there somewhere I could staycation in Indianapolis? I'd really like to get out of town, but the Midwest is starved for weekend destinations outside of Western Michigan, IMO. A lot of people go to Wisconsin. I haven't ventured there yet, but... uh Indianapolis seems lovely this time of year. <laughs> anyway, thank you for calling. I could probably do a whole episode on this if I wanted. I'm going to try to organize my thoughts because I don't know how interesting it is to bring visuals to life with my words. But I think when I think of music videos, well, there's a lot of different ways I could go here. So there's some different area, eras rather uh, that I experienced with music videos. In my house, I was not allowed to watch MTV, uh, nor really VH1, but... There, there was one point where my parents rearranged some furniture and the one rogue TV went in a place we called our Florida room and it faced the outside. And the key to watching the TV you want as a kid is one, finding the TV that has the least likelihood of people walking behind you. 
Uh, and two, to mitigate that risk, having a tight, tight grip on the remote with your thumb on the last or return key. So if one of your parents comes a knocking or walks, you know, past you, you can press a button and be like, no, I wasn't watching making the video of Britney Spears Lucky where she's scantily clad because I'm too young to be exposed to a woman sexualizing herself in such a way. Quite the opposite. Lucky for you, I was watching Chez Starbucks Luck of the Irish on the Disney Channel about a young boy who turns into a leprechaun, obviously. Oh, it wasn't Chez Starbucks. It was the, I love Chez Starbucks. He was so hot. He's from the 13th year, though. He's the merman. Ugh, Ryan Merriman. <laughs> I do not know why I have these names banked in my head. It was in Luck of the Irish and Smart House of Slam Dunk, the funk fame. Anyway, um, you know, the very first thing that comes to my mind when I think 90s music videos in terms of like what puts a jolt in my system thinking back on watching something I shouldn't have been or something like you know when I think of the word iconic things can be iconic for different reasons and iconic to like a guilty pleasure or feeling like I shouldn't I was watching something I shouldn't something like images that burned in my brain forever you know back in the day um the year was 1996 and I'd heard the old adage an apple a day and I don't think my mom realized I misunderstood that to be one viewing of Fiona Apple's criminal video a day in which I partook in some alarmingly spooky, haunting, addicting, moody, uh, uh, fussy, but well-stylized, dated, but modern, hypnotically off-putting scenery of something so incredibly regular that the New Yorker did describe as heroin chic, which... As a pairing of words, I don't know how I feel about, but we all remember this grungy era of music. And Fiona Apple, then 17, uh, is in this video called Criminal, and it's an outstanding song, the biggest of her career. One she wrote begrudgingly, almost, because she had written a whole album. It's like 16, 17 years old. They said they needed like a more catchy single. And it almost, my understanding of a story is it's almost like a, a Sarah Bareilles love song. Like, I'm not going to write you a love song. It's like a it's like an F you to the label. She kind of um, jokingly sits down and sings like, I've been a bad, bad girl, like kind of pandering to like, okay, this is what you want me to write about. And the song is really interesting because it's a, basically about feeling bad about using your sexuality to get something and how um, you can simultaneously resent that women fall victim to you know, leveraging their femininity to get what they want, uh, but also kind of subliminally participate in the usage of it, which is kind of, it's kind of an advanced concept for her age. And what I think the video does really well is that it's that similar dichotomy between like this, this is, this feels, um, the video captures this, this like banality of suburban life paired with this like sex and drugs and rock and roll a grimy edge that makes it look totally undesirable but there's some sort of voyeuristic satisfaction out of watching it because it seems it like feels it the scenery feels too normal to be watching and that's almost why it's addictive does that make sense it's not like a um caric caricaturization of uh a house in a or suburban house in a way that makes it like cartoonish or stepford or even that makes like something really you know, basementy, industrial, grungy. It's just like a very dated home 
with 70 shag carpet and wood paneling and beer bottles and almost those like off-putting views of singular stuffed animals that I compare to Miley uh, Cyrus as we can't stop. Um, and she has red eye that is like you correct out of photos, but they left it in. She's in a bathtub between a person's legs. There's like limbs everywhere. She undresses to the point to these silk undergarments that are a dead ringer for uh, Miss Hannigan kind of grinding around her bathtub with her pearls on in the movie version of the musical Annie with Carol Burnett. It's kind of funny because now if my kid was watching that, I'd walk past and be like, <gasps> but it wouldn't really be about the sex or drugs. It'd be like, oh, my God, the wood paneling, that sh green shag carpet. How off putting. Uh, because I'm so desensitized because of, like, TikTok. I, I, some days I'm like, another day, another gal bent over on the internet. Like, I just, nothing shocks me anymore. <laughs> anyway, um, I, Fiona Apple's Criminal, I think if you're familiar with it, is, is incredibly iconic for feeling like you're doing something wrong, for feeling like you're participating in a sin you're going to have to confess to later or tell your youth pastor about and for being a lens into at-risk youth behavior that felt a little too realistic and almost like you shouldn't be watching it and almost like I definitely shouldn't because I was nine. But also, um, I think that my depictions of at-risk behavior at that point had been like cartoon all-stars when Bugs Bunny and like the gang get together and get that guy to stop smoking dope. Um, or, you know, if I had caught glimpses of the real world. I kind of would pick up on what was and wasn't, you know, supposed to fly in real life. Uh, I knew drunk driving was bad because of the serious PSAs after that Saved by the Bell episode where they crashed. Didn't they drink and then crash the driver's ed car? Or am I mixing up two episodes? Anyway, not the point. Actually, I was probably more afraid of drinking beer because that time at the school dance, those kids were drinking beers uh, out in the hallway and DJ Tanner got sprayed and then she got in trouble because she smelled like beer, but it wasn't her. But I think that Joey and Jesse were like suspicious of her behavior because she had already snuck out to go to get Stacy Q's signature at the mall. And she ditched school when Joey actually went for her to get the autograph for her, which was like really nice. Honestly, it's a, the whole situation. I mean, like your uncle and your dad's uh, best comedian ventriloquist friend live with you and pay way too much attention to your life. <laughs> Be like, Joey, I know I ditched school, but can we please not... Have Stacey Q talking to Mr. Woodchuck right now. It's just like embarrassing. Um, but I group music videos into like three categories by network because depending on if I was allowed to watch it and depending on the um, kind of essence of the network, those are the videos I would watch and that I feel strongly about. Um, and I don't, this is like in my memory, this is how it was, but I, it also is hugely biased by probably what I paid attention to, but I think that like when I think of, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, there were three networks where I was pr primarily watching music videos, VH1, MTV and Disney Channel. VH1 had the countdowns before TRL because TRL didn't happen until like 98 when like peak jive records, pop music was coming on the scene, right? Prior to that, VH1 had a very strong adult contemporary countdown in some top 40. But VH, the, what VH1 considers the top countdown, it was always more instrument heavy. The women were always more soulful. They had a high, higher propensity to uh, you know, perform at Lilith Fair, perhaps. Um, it was music I would hear being driven to the pool by, you know, my friends semi with it 
parent that worked a little too much in their fairly new Honda Accord with tan interior. I, I feel like the VH1 music I got into and the music videos I remember with this soulful, let's focus on females. Um, so like, okay, so the best way to draw this comparison between MTV and VH1, especially when TRL came around, MTV focused a lot on like the pop queens, but also honored the one to hit female wonders. So we'd have our Britneys, our Christinas, our Jessica Simpsons, of course. Uh, we, but then they'd also honor a Willa Ford, I Want to Be Bad, or a Blue Cantrell Hit Him Up style just as well, even if they didn't have the longevity of a Destiny's Child. VH1 Countdown was more like Jewel, Meredith Brooks, Lisa Loeb, Sean Colvin, Paula Cole, Sarah McLaughlin, Cheryl, Cheryl Crow, Fiona Apple, like that sort of thing. And I think that MTV honored the pop queens and R&B female stars um, that were kind of like mainstream younger radio. And then VH1 also honored kind of the pop divas. I mean, they literally have the kind of brand name concert divas, but like Toni Braxton would be top five on VH1, but not MTV. She was like more of an adult contemporary older skewing artist that was still was outstanding. Like Unbreak My Heart was huge. Um, even Mariah was a little bit more VH1 until similar wording. Uh, Heartbreaker and songs in like Honey that kind of incorporated other artists like P. Diddy, One Sweet Day, Boys to Men. Like I think Mariah started a little bit more adult contemporary and then skewed into the pop sector. Um, I think that like at the same time, like let's say it's the year 2000, two girl groups emerged. Let's just use an example. One is called The Course. They sing a song called Breathless. It does make my ears bleed. If I hear, go on, go on, one more time, I, I, I will be breathless. I will be breathing into a paper bag. I, that's, you know, it is a beautiful opening to, it isn't the opening to Deborah Messing's The Wedding Date. Also, the chorus and KT Tunstall to me are vaguely the same musically, and that I can't really explain. KT Tunstall sings um, Black Horse and the Cherry Tree, as well as Suddenly I See from the opening to Devil Wears Prada. Is the opening to the D Wears piece in some way getting confused in my head with Deborah Messing's The Wedding Date? Maybe, maybe. But in 2000, the chorus come out with Breathless, huge song. Dream comes out with He Loves You Not, which it did rip my pants to on a talent show stage. Dream is huge on MTV. The chorus, not so much. But I think like that's kind of one's bubblegum poppy, younger, more easily digestible. And to be fair, the chorus, I think we're more like musicians. Like I think VH1 is like, People who play instruments and MTV was like people who are being played like instruments by like Lou Perlman and the gang. Easily digestible bubblegum pop where you're essentially a figurehead delivering a song somebody else wrote being oversexed, underaged and just pandering to low rise denim America with your love anthems that will ruin people's expectations for relationships for years to come. Speaking from experience, looking at you, God must have spent a little more time on you. Um, but yeah, the One Sweet Day video was huge for me on VH1 because I was a huge Mariah Carey fan. It was one of the first albums I ever bought. And uh, she had a Lhasa Apsa dog. And around that time, I was begging my parents for a dog. Uh, and I really wanted a Lhasa Apsa or a Bichon Frise. We ended up finding a Conquer Spaniel from a random home near a paper factory. It's a long story. But I was really enchanted uh, by the One Sweet Day video. And I think that like... Also, anthems about missing somebody like One Sweet Day, uh, uh, I'll Be Missing You, Puff Daddy, uh, even um, uh, Where You Are, Jessica Simpson and Nick Lachey. Those kill me. Um, 
but the third sector of music videos, and sorry, I'm not even talking about music videos. I'm talking about the channels that I watch music videos on, but I hopefully you guys get what I'm saying. It, the third one is Disney Channel. And Disney Channel it was like for a while subscriber-based TV, but then it got put on normal cable, but it didn't, as far as I remember, it didn't have actual commercials. Disney Channel only had commercials for Disney stuff, and they would support these random artists um, for a short period of time, and they would play the music videos so much that they're forever burned in my brain, and the quality of videos was always horrendous. Um, I guess with Disney, I'm kind of grouping in like maybe Fox Family, ABC Family. I don't really know what the origin of some of these artists are, but this is the tier of um, music that I don't know how to quite classify beyond feeling like Disney. Like, for example... Um, Samantha Moomba, Gotta Tell You. She was heavily featured on Disney, if I remember correctly. Uh, the A-Teens. They only sung ABBA songs, but then they also had that hit Upside Down Bouncing Off the Ceiling. The Norwegian group M2M. There's also Stacey Arico, who sang More to Life. And that walked so Switchfoot's Meant to Live could run as it relates to youthful existential crises about the purpose of living. I also think about um, S Club 7 kind of in this category, even though they were Fox family and they had that weird show of they like worked at a motel of the I'm asking some, some hits though, way too many band members, but K-pop reassured us that seven members doesn't make sense. I also think that like bewitched falls in this category with say la vie and roller coaster. Um, of course we have Myra miracles happen from the princess diaries. We also have crystal Supergirl from the princess diaries. Who, who I do think has the same hairstyle as protozoa from Xenon girl of the 21st century with that spiky number uh all of these kind of swirl in my head and i can't think of the specific videos but i spent majority of my youth only watching music videos and when you go back and watch 90s and 2000s videos they're super comically unmemorable for the most part unless something really sticks out in my head that i had an affinity for like the Lhasa opsa like fiona apple's criminal or like the entire uh, uh entirety of christina aguilera's come on over because the pants were low the the tops were cropped the belly, we had belly button rings, but we also had be belly bedazzling. Um, when that guy reached around from behind her and unzipped her like neon green pleather number in one of the many rooms with like polka dots, diamonds, or color blocked bright prints, I was like, oh, am I watching porn? I thought it was like full on Skinamax. I was like, our father who art in heaven. I didn't, I, I was like, whoa. Because before Moulin Rouge and before we got too dirty to clean our act up, Christina Aguilera in Come On Over, like that video was suggestive. I still remember the dance moves. I remember marveling over her small ribcage and long torso. She's one of my original long torso uh, realizations that I did not have one. I obsessed over her stomach as did I at Kirsten Dunst in the movie Bring It On. They both have like similar types of torsos that like they just naturally very much curve inward and they're long. And that's just something that I know I talk about torsos a lot, but I... But, you know, when you were I, at the age when your body's changing, you watch all of your friends' bodies develop and everybody had like hips and a waist. And I just kept waiting and I never got one. Um, I just like I am kind of like straight. I, I, I don't have a cinched waist and I, my ribs and my hips almost touch. Um, and I just I don't know. I just remember being really fixated on that. And I don't say that from like a, you know, bad body image standpoint it wasn't anything like dark it was just like you kind of are fascinated by what you don't have um and it's memorable to me for some reason but anyway I think that making the video series is probably the most important thing to point out beyond 
my mental grouping of types of um, videos and video countdown programs I watched. Because, like, I remember watching, making the video for Enrique Iglesias' escape and his then-girlfriend and now still wife, right? Anna Kornikova was the hottest thing. And they were, like, in uh, a movie theater bathroom or something, like, making out. And I was like, damn, clearly I'm, like, only liked the, I only remember, like, the pervy parts. Because I think things that were off limits and were, like, exciting to watch. And again, they were just kissing. It wasn't that big of a deal. But it was suggestive for how old I was. Um, I think about, I mean, all of Brittany and Christina's were on there. Like, you drive me crazy when that movie came out. Um, oh, my God. Making the video for Toxic with the flight attendant was wild. Uh, I loved the making the video for The Real Slim Shady. Um, Come On Over was obviously iconic. Moulin Rouge, like, literally blew my mind. I don't know. It's like Christina Aguilera can dress up as a moth and fighter and a man. Or I can be watching uh, Bootylicious. Bootylicious had a really good making the video. And I remember them describing what Bootylicious was very distinctly. Um, I'm trying to think what else. I already talked about Heartbreaker, right? That's when we got introduced to Mariah Carey's um, alter ego. Uh, what's her name? <laughs> Bianca. Just like Beyonce has Sasha Fierce and um, Garth Brooks has uh, Chris Gaines. Uh, just like Hillary, you know, Lizzie McGuire had, uh, Isabella, you know, everybody needs a, or Michelle Tanner's Greek twin. Everybody needs a brunette alter ego. And Bianca was Mariah Carey's and we, I believe we're introduced to her in the Heartbreaker video, uh, which takes place in a movie theater also. Maybe Escape doesn't take place in a movie theater. What am I thinking? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, and Instinct did really good ones too for making the video, uh, they did Bye Bye Bye, which I think a lot of the songs we know the dance moves to uh, are a product of making the video and watching that choreography. Um, Lucky Britney Spears, like, I don't, something about that, I can, like, taste that song. Does that make sense? <laughs> the, the, the diamonds and, like, the depiction of fame and Britney at that stage and, like, I just got in her album and something about Lucky to me is so sensory. Um, and... It's like so dark now when you think about the like undertone of that song. Oh my God. And Oops, I Did It Again was also on that, right? On making the video. But I thought he dropped it into the ocean at the end. Well, baby, I went down and got it for you. Aw, you shouldn't have. That That will go down as the weirdest interstitial. I, I, why? What was the point of that? It's so necessary, but it's so needless at the same time. Uh, the Titanic was very popular, so... Anyways, I just spent way too long answering that question. Moving on. If you don't mind, real quick, I want to thank one of our advertisers this week. This is one of my favorites and one I'm drinking right now. It is Liquid IV. I mean, guys, you probably know about Liquid IV for their popular uh, hydration drink mix. But they also have this thing called the Energy Multiplier. And as a low-energy gal, I can tell you it's an absolute game changer and gives you a little extra boost that you might need on this work day or otherwise. Uh, 2020 was rough. I feel emotionally hungover. Many people have liquid IV for actual hangovers, but it's not a bad way to clean the slate and start 2021 off on the right foot. One stick of liquid IV is like drinking two cups of coffee, and it's an all-natural alternative to processed energy drinks for a sustained energy boost throughout the day. I feel tired around like three to four o'clock, which is ironically in peak recording time for me. So this helps me feel less groggy either when I wake up or when I lose steam in the afternoon. And helps me with like my decreased focus or lack of motivation. So, you know, I'm I'm very moody. It's a whole thing. Liquid IV Energy Multiplier is a great way to upgrade your vibe. 
to use like scientific terms. (laughs) Anyways, liquid IV beyond that, they have this cellular transport technology that delivers an optimal uh, ratio of nutrients for a more efficient uptake with enhanced rapid absorption into the bloodstream to give you a lasting energy boost fast. It's non-GMO, vegan, free of gluten, dairy, and soy, and they're on a mission to positively change the world, which I love. They've donated over 10 million servings globally. In response to COVID-19, over 4 million products are being donated to hospitals, first responders, food banks, veterans, and active U.S. military. So if you want to grab your energy, Liquid IV, in bulk nationwide, you can do so at Costco, or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code BETHERE in 5 at checkout. That's 25% off. That's a really good discount. 25% off anything we want that you order when you use promo code be there and five at liquidiv.com. Start fueling your adventures today at liquidiv.com. Promo code be there and five. Hi, Kate Lila. This is Brittany, longtime listener. So I am listening right now, actually, to one of your most recent episodes. And the thought struck me. Don't know where it came from. I know you said in the past, you said often that your mom listens to the podcast, so you're conscious kind of of cussing and whatnot. But, you know, you talk a lot about being depressed, you know, throughout college and rough relationships and just your rough road with Jesus and religion growing up. So have you and your mom ever had a conversation about about these things? I just was thinking as a mom myself, how maybe it would make me sad listening to my daughter as an adult say, you know, how she was depressed in college or really struggled. So I just have one really wondering and kind of been wondering, actually, if you guys have talked about this or if she's mentioned that it makes her sad to hear these things or if she had any idea or just kind of what you guys, like how your relationship is now. Has it changed since she's heard? That's about it. I love you. I love your show. And keep on keeping on, girl. This is a really interesting question. And yes, I think it absolutely does affect her. Uh, and we talked about it a little bit, depending on the episode. The, I think one thing is like, if I, if I, if I have an episode come out that I don't really think she'll understand, or I feel like is edgier, or I don't know, sometimes I'll be like, I'll ask her not to listen. I don't know if she really does or doesn't. If I were her, I probably still would. Uh, but the thing is a lot of people are like, like my mom and I are very, very close, but I've never treated my mom as my BFF and I've never spoken to her exactly like I speak to a friend. I do angle and censor my personality based on me talking to a parent. I respect my parents. I'm in my thirties, but I, and I think some people do transition fully over to BFF them, but I still very much respect my mother and I don't speak to her as colloquially, um, or with like the same language as I would a person my own age that I'm, I'm friends with. And I think that like one interesting thing for my mom has maybe been feeling like my personality slightly different on here, but it's not that I've changed. It's that I've just not always I speak to the general public with a little less filter and more frankly than I maybe do to my parents because they're my parents. Like I've I've literally never in person dropped an F-bomb. If I've cursed in front of them in person, it's probably on accident. Like and again, we're close. We're not like Pollyanna weird. I, I don't know. I'm sure there's other people out there like this. You just 
you kind of alter your language depending on who you're talking to. And I'm the youngest child and they're still very much my parents. And I try to be respectful of the language they like to hear in their house. And oftentimes that is not what I do on the podcast, but I've always kind of spoken the same to my friends and spouse. Um, so I think that she's probably gotten to know me in a, like a different light maybe is one piece. I think the second piece is um, this in terms of her, making her sad, probably. I'm, I mean, like, I'm sure it's it's difficult for me to hear anybody that I love went through anything difficult. And uh, I never want her to feel that way. But what I try to, you know, communicate is um, my my processing of the way that I felt is very often in retrospect. And I think that what's interesting about this podcast and this medium is I have the luxury of hearing myself say things I didn't know I thought. Uh, I have this almost therapeutic line of communication where I get to speak uninterrupted and not adjust my speech based on the way somebody else is responding. And it's very unusual to speak to yourself for this long. And most people never get to do it. I've learned more about myself doing this podcast the past three years than I ever did in any other format of self-discovery because I I don't really have a choice, but to be honest, I don't, uh, even if I can anticipate what I think you're going to say, I don't, I can't really mold it in real time in a way that I might in person because I can be somewhat of a mirror ball uh, a la Taylor Swift and like change things about myself to fit the context. But this is a very raw format. And I think sometimes I process things out loud that I didn't even know I felt. I think that it's it's definitely a weird experience because if my mom or my sister were sitting in front of me and I could see them reacting or having an emotional response to something I would say, my priority would be their comfort and then I'd reel it in. But that's why this single hosted format is really unique. Um, And I don't know if it benefits you, but um, that's why I think it's particularly vulnerable for me. And the other thing with um, retrospect that you have to remember is the way that I am uh, analyzing and sharing my experiences of my youth is through the lens of an adult. I now can explain the way I felt as a 33-year-old woman that I didn't know I felt as a 13-year-old girl. When any of this stuff happens, even when in college, when I was depressed, like I didn't really know it was happening. And I look back on it and the way I explain it is very different from the way it felt in real time. Not that it's any better or worse, but that I I think that's what's interesting about growing up in life and getting to know yourself better is you don't always know uh, you're in a phase or a state of being while it's happening um, depending on how in tune you are with your own baseline and mental health. I've not been able to identify a lot of things I've gone through until after the fact. And also, as I always try to clarify, like it's nothing that's that severe or extreme, I think, by most standards. But I try to um, communicate these phases of life I've gone through because I don't think things have to be extreme to be valid, to be paid attention to. Um, And I don't think that your external environment needs to be dire for you to be allowed to have ups and downs with your mental health. 
And I think sometimes part of my guilt is that I've had a really great life and I'm really great parents and I, I really can't ask for more. Um, but I do think that like my wiring is melancholic. I think that I get down very easily. I think that I spent a long time feeling really guilty that I couldn't snap out of it. Um, and I didn't really express that nor work through that until like later in my 20s. And again, it's nothing extreme. It's just that I, I want to share these things with people because I think I, I wasn't living as an optimal version of myself through certain life phases, completely disregarding the way that I felt as if I didn't have the right to be down, as if I didn't have the right to feel out of place. Um, when I think that I was just not acknowledging that, like, actually my whole life I've had a little bit of a blue disposition. I used to, like, sit out in the rain. I've written poems since I was, like, you know, in kindergarten. Like, I'm just kind of intense. And as I've talked about with the whole highly sensitive person realization and whatever. Um, so, and th those are examples of things I've kind of, like, realized through this podcast, through the audience reaching out and having conversations about these things. And, um, all that to say, yes, I think it's hard for her. However, it's not like I didn't feel like I could come to her or talk to her in real time. It's that I think that a lot of uh, common things I went through are processed by an adult differently than they're processed by a child or, you know, a young adult. And I talked to her when I was having severe issues, but I didn't know that there were implications of the language and way that boys were talked about and the way that the wardrobe was enforced and the way that salvation was hung over your head or I was dangled off a rock climbing wall like all of those camp things they were it, within my reference group of friends that went to these this stuff it was normal and also there's this messaging that's kind of like if anybody doesn't believe this um you know if anybody in your life isn't like following Jesus in this way and doesn't have their soul saved, like they're going to hell. Um, it was a very heavy conversation. The, and the only person I ever really breached this was, was my sister because I found out she had been drinking and I pulled her into the bathroom, like, <laughs> like couldn't breathe crying because then told her I thought she was going to hell. Um, and you can imagine that didn't go over great. And I learned my lesson. <laughs> Maybe I wasn't going to witness inside the household. Um, but anyway, I just think that like I have always had boundaries with my parents in terms of like when I'm going through personal stuff I'll kind of figure it out on my own if it was extreme if I was in danger if it was my health like I'd say something but half the time I didn't know that the very um normal ups and downs uh that I was going through had a reason behind them had a workaround had a root cause and I use the word normal to say that people go through stuff and it's fine and it wasn't a big thing at the time, nor anything my mom needed to take on necessarily. Rather, I just didn't have the perspective of an adult to acknowledge like what it was and to diagnose it as well as I can now. So I don't know if that answers your question, but short answer, yes, I do think it's hard to hear. But I try to remind her that this it's not like I was not telling her something life altering. It's that you don't realize that certain moments of your life are important or transformational oftentimes until after the fact when you can kind of identify patterns and I also think that my parents generation is much more privacy driven 
generation that I think a lot of aspects of being public facing. Yeah. But having this podcast or the stuff I share on Instagram or whatever it is, like, it's just a lot of um, personal information. And I think that that's like, was kind of a hurdle too. Um, but I'm kind of, the way I see things is like, which I've tried to express is I think that in many careers and cases, like privacy makes total sense. I think people need to lean into whatever they, wherever their natural comfort is. And if that is keeping more to yourself, then do that. If, but if it's opening up, do that too. And I'm but a speck on this earth who will be dust one day. So while I'm here, even if it's not always comfortable... I sure as hell want to make it interesting. And I genuinely believe that as people, if you're comfortable, um, we, have, we have more to lose by hoarding our experiences and our thoughts and our feelings and, than we do by sharing them. And I think that while I understand the prioritization of, of, of privacy and pride and how it it's deeply important to somebody's internal world. When I think of myself in the scope of the broader world over the course of time, I really don't care if I embarrass myself, if I speak out of turn on occasion, if I'm not always on the right side of history, if I have to evolve and explore. Um, I, I think that there's value to openness if you're if you're a willing participant. Um, I, I think about this every time I'm on Ancestry.com, like deep diving, trying to find information about like past relatives. And I, I'm scraping. I can find so little. And I see like what a priority holding your card so close to your chest was and rug sweeping and anything that wasn't becoming or anything that was a family matter, you just it just never was written down. It's really hard to figure out people hit a lot of things. And like, I'm just very interested in this idea of like obsessively prioritizing one's own image and pride. And then all of a sudden you're like gone. And then nobody, there's no, there's no trace of you. If you didn't share, if you didn't write it down, if you didn't, you know what I mean? And um, maybe they're putting too much out there, but I feel a great deal of, um, importance uh in being a person that believes in sharing and since everybody's not like that nor does everybody have to be but I feel a certain level of duty that I should try and it doesn't need to be the biggest money maker the most famous thing ever it simply needs to add value to enough people and if I can make a living off of that then I mean what a gift so anyways that was a really long answer but I think that that kind of broader philosophy I have is I don't know what I kind of try to communicate uh, when it's if you really wanted for this to feel really weird if you're a person that knows me well or raised me for example it could be weird yeah um it can be uncomfortable I think it has made her sad I think it I'm sure has made her frustrated at times that I'm saying things she doesn't believe in but um I would not be doing my job if I was reeling off somebody else's truth if I wasn't allowing myself that exploratory thought process if I wasn't um being honest to my mission here and she knows that too and I think respects that all things considered hopefully nets positive um and yeah I honestly think the harder thing is probably like 
there's such an exertion on my end, like a vulnerability of energy of like, I talk so much that I have to listen back to myself talk. And I get so tired of hearing my voice and my thoughts. And like, it's interesting when your work is talking because in your downtime, you just don't want to talk, but it's, it's kind of impacted my ability to keep up with people. Well, for two reasons, one that by the time I get around to talking to my family members or friends, I'm just like so tired of talking and I want to just hear about them. And I don't always, I don't know. It's kind of an interesting thing where I don't maybe always realize the like emotional exhaustion I feel depending on the whatever the topic or episode was that week because you don't hear the days and days of recording and stuff I cut and rework and um so that can kind of be an issue and also if I do something edgier or that I know my mom won't agree with or whatever I'll just avoid calling her that week because I'm scared she listened that's a problem um and then I just kind of like wait till it passes and then act like I never said anything um on the other side, it's kind of like, you know, you don't feel as inclined to go to your high school reunions because you can see what people are doing on Facebook. Since I share a lot on Instagram and I talk so much on here, I do feel like people reach out to me less because they know what I'm up to. But it doesn't mean I have any idea what's going on with them. And sometimes I feel like it kind of affects my friendships in that way because, um, like, it's just so much of me all the time. And then I don't want to like reach out and make it seem more about me, but I want to know what's going on with them. But I don't always feel like people reach out to me as much because um, like they, there's no questions they know exactly what's going on. And I don't know. It's hard to explain. But anyway, yeah, it's definitely a complicated thing that um, I've had to navigate and I will continue to navigate. Uh, this past year, I've I mean, from childless millennial to like, I mean, like there were so many instances where I was like. I literally laid in bed and stared at the ceiling for hours. I had I had no more thoughts. I had no more emotions. I was tapped dry. I like put my soul out there so much, and that is freaking horrifying. And and I feel like childless millennial is probably the most vulnerable thing I ever done. And the majority of the people that I thought would get it, I've never really heard from about it, or they didn't, or I they didn't really identify with it because it's such a specific thing to a life phase and a certain type of person I think but then some of the people that I was the most afraid of like hearing those thoughts I feel like reached out to me with the most thoughtful feedback and like really related to it and that's what I mean with the vulnerability piece it's like sometimes you don't know who feels or thinks the exact same thing and the people you think will judge you the most harshly actually really identify with it and you don't know that about them because they've been they haven't said it either they've been too afraid to speak up about that sort of thing and um Anyway, uh, yeah, it's it's really all over the place. And that was a really interesting question. I appreciate you asking. Um, at the end of the day, like, I care so much what my parents, my sister, my brother, my husband, my husband's family, my friends think that is paramount to me above what the general public thinks. But just as uh, anybody in this type of role needs to do, you have to weigh, um, you know, what what topics or things should you avoid to just not rock the boat with your family or friends that should really be able to grow and evolve with you and give you space and allow you to do your job well versus what will actually offend and impede on your relationship. And those are lines you have to draw and things you have to figure out. And I try to do the best I can. And I don't think everybody's always happy with me. But I, th I do think you develop this kind of endurance or tolerance, I guess, for like, I'll say I'm going to talk about something. I can sense like my mom's nervous. 
but then she'll be like, actually, you did a good job. Like, I, I, I know she, when I first started venturing into like Mormon mommy bloggers, she was like, oh, gosh, <laughs> like because she's a woman of faith and wants me to be respectful. And I don't think she understood how I would talk about that in a way that was. Um, but even after that, she was like, actually, I thought you handled that well and you did a good job exploring it fairly. And I was like, thank you. But if like I had not done that because for fear of messing up because of that tentative instinct to do something preventatively, I would have never explored my ability to talk about more touchy subjects. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's it's always interesting. OK, I have to laugh because <laughs> I um I need to think that this week's sponsor, but this week's sponsor brought up something called the big game. I was like, the big game? What? What's going on Sunday? I have a PowerPoint party. Apparently the Super Bowl. Apparently none of the Beths <laughs> were paying attention either because nobody said anything that I scheduled a party right during the Super Bowl uh, or the PowerPoint party, rather. And now I'm laughing. We'll probably have to reschedule it. But yes, yes, the big game, of course. <laughs> I've been waiting, waiting all year. Uh, this episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. And whether or not you, you know, whether you watch football or you eat in honor of the big game and pretend to watch while you scroll through your phone, uh, ButcherBox has something for you. Right now they're offering one rack of St. Louis ribs, one pack of bacon, and one pack of pulled pork free in your first box. Whether you'll be watching the big game or not, it's a fantastic deal. Luckily, today's sponsor, ButcherBox, believes everyone deserves high-quality, humanely sourced meat. Uh, it's really nice because I, I don't know a ton about meat. I'm not a great grocery shopper. I live in the city. I don't have a car. Having meat show up to my door is so freaking convenient. And I, he has kept me fed all winter and will continue to. I'm making pork chops tonight. And by I, I mean my husband, but I will hover around him and drink wine and pretend to help. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meat for a better price to the, than the grocery store. Each box is, has nine to 11 pounds of meat, enough for 24 individual meals. And eat, all meat is free of antibiotics and added hormones. You can uh, get one of their curated packs or choose your own. They have different options like 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar-slash-nitrate-free bacon. It's the way meat should be. Around You get the highest-quality stuff for like $6 a meal or so, and they have free shipping nationwide except Alaska and Hawaii, and it's a lot of meat, so that's outstanding. And right now, you can get a free rack of St. Louis ribs, one pack of bacon, and one pack of pulled pork off your first box. That's one rack of St. Louis ribs, one pack of bacon, and one pack of pulled pork for free in the first box. Just go to butcherbox.com slash be there in five. That's butcherbox.com slash be there in five. Also this week, I wanted to uh, shout out Feels, F-E-A-L-S. I, especially in early 2021, have uh, been using this quite a bit. Navigating the world of CBD can be very complicated, and I love Feels because they have worked hard to make the process as simple as possible with a really high-quality product shipped conveniently to your door. And I particularly will take CBD for like sleeplessness, to relax before bedtime, I'll put a few drops under my tongue, I've been a CBD user for years for stress, for tension. Um, anytime I need to feel like I need to relax a little bit with something that's, you know, pretty mild and takes the edge off a little bit. It's one of those things that's kind of hard to describe unless you try it. And the reason I really like working with Feels is because they understand how individualized the CBD experience is and they offer real human support. They have a free CBD hotline, which I think is really important because they guide 
they'll help guide you through the experience. And the thing to remember about CBD is that finding the right dose is really important and everyone's dose is very different. So you kind of have to leave room to experiment over the course of a week or so. You might need to take more or less to get the effects you're after. And Feels offers this free CBD hotline to help guide you through the process. It's a natural way to help you feel better. No high, no hangover, no addiction. And um, I I don't know. I've looked at a lot of different companies, and I feel like Feels does this right, and they have a really high-quality product and uh, leadership that genuinely cares about helping people to understand more about what CBD can do for you. So Feels has me feeling my best every day, and it can help you too. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash be there in five and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash be there in five to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash be there in five. Hi, Kate. My name is Maddie. I'm from Oregon where there's simultaneously a lot of kinds of restaurants and none at the same time. Um, so when my boyfriend and I started dating about two years ago, I asked him what his favorite kind of food was. He said seafood, and thus started the two-year debate argument with between us and all of our friends and family. So is, quote-unquote, seafood a type of food? I said no, because there's Italian seafood, Mexican seafood, Thai seafood, I mean seafood. It can literally be anything. So therefore, it's not a type of food, and it doesn't answer the question. My boyfriend's argument is that there are, are literally just seafood restaurants, that the whole restaurant is seafood, and that, that makes it a type of food and answers the question. So my question to you is, is seafood a type of food? And two, do you and Greg have any of these, like, funny arguments that have lasted forever? Because this has been, I mean, we bring this up at least once a month. Anyways, thanks for listening. Love the show. I'm honored you come to me with these pressing uh, questions. I, 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 I live for this type of banter around a topic you just can't drop because you can't reach consensus. And, you know... I appreciate you so deeply as a listener. Uh, it's a bath, my God. But I have to say I agree with your significant other because what I've concluded is that you're asking for something different than um, you're saying. And he's answering your question literally. And he's not wrong because when you say what's your favorite type of food, like colloquially, like oh, what's your favorite type of food? I think what you're saying is what's your favorite type of cuisine or dish. And what he's answering is what's his literal favorite type of food. I do think that in, like, the States and stuff, yeah, there's seafood restaurants. And even, I guess, anywhere there's uh, restaurants that focus on seafood. Uh, but just like me saying steak is my favorite food, and that could be carne asada or that could be steak frites, there's going to be a lot of overlap between food type or group and um, cultural uh, origin. And the difference between food and cuisine is cuisine generally refers to um like or categorizes food as being from a certain culture, right? And then it's kind of like kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Species. I'm kind of thinking of, thinking of it in like taxonomic order, as like food overall, uh, food category, food like cultural origin, food preparation, dish. I don't know. That doesn't work actually, because it's like I could say cheese. And that that's uh, no, honestly, I think he's right. I think it's I think that's fair to say. But if you want to know cuisine, he should answer with a more culture with more cultural specificity. And if it's dish, you could be like Demi Lovato and say mug in one of the greatest clips of all time um, where she thought they were asking her what her favorite my kitchen dish is. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, 
I, I get what you're saying, but I do think seafood's an inadequate answer. And I just asked my dad and sister, and they said that that's their favorite type of food, and that's how they would answer. But I come from a family of, like, seafood enthusiasts, and I have mixed thoughts about seafood. I think I think it is hugely contingent upon the dish and the preparation and the cu- cuisine and culture, actually. Like, I will eat seafood all day, any day, on an island or somewhere coastal. If, if I am in the Pacific Northwest and the, I have a Dungeness crab available to me, like, you know, I, I, I'm all in with Teddy. Uh, but I've lived in the Midwest for so long and I'm so landlocked. I've had so much bad seafood that I just am a little disenchanted. But yeah, when I'm on the East Coast, my mom's crab cakes, my parents make the best shrimp, low country boils. My God, I think I'm a big like shrimp mussels person. I'll eat some crab. We have a long history of crab picking in my family, but I struggle when I'm, I, I need some separation between myself and the body of the animal I'm about to eat. So I, I don't, I struggle sometimes eating wings, uh, picking crabs, like an Italian branzino is tough for me with the bones. Uh, I throw, you know, I've been controversially known to throw back the crabs in my parents' crab pot because they live on a sound. <laughs> I just want them to live their best lives and be free. I feel so badly when I really overthink it. Um, but my dad does throw back the female, so that's nice. I've always appreciated that. Um, you can tell by their apron if you turn the crab over. But anyway, you guys, uh, yeah, I think that it's a fair argument. It's a fun one to have. It's like, is a hot dog a taco or a sandwich? You know, it's like, depending on how you look at it, if you really want to analyze something, you can. If I really wanted to take this deeper and make like an infographic, I could. But I think high level, colloquially speaking, it is a fair uh, response. And whether he's talking about going to a crawfish boil in Louisiana and eating seafood in that context or a Branzino on the Amalfi Coast, that is up to the conversationalist to drill down. But I think it's fair to say as a whole, if you like to eat sea life. Um, As far as Greg and I, yeah, we have conversations like this all the time. I'm trying to think of a good example. Actually, you know, what's kind of funny is I was, I have so many um, audio files on my computer of stuff I've never used. And at one point I was thinking of like compiling um, like a cut footage type episode. It was just, it would be too, it's, I, I I do all the editing and production by myself, like listening to so much audio and compiling it is, I don't know, it's more work than it sounds like, so I never did it. But I was listening to a clip that I recorded for Patreon over Thanksgiving that I didn't use where I was going to answer the questions that people submitted as conversation starters, like what I would say. And there was one about sea life. And sometimes I record in my living room. And then when Greg gets home, he'll like sit next to me and uh, be working but it's like, so it's, it's one of those things where I like when he's there, but he's like typing and it picks up so I can never use the audio. But he was sitting like for a portion of me recording and something gets brought up about sea life. And then he gives like is mumbling to himself about his thoughts on the octopus teacher, which is something we argue about constantly because he thought it had erotic undertones and I don't see that at all. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I feel like this is a weird thing to air because he's not speaking with the intent of being recorded here. Uh, He's just mumbling to himself while I'm recording. And if I jacked up his audio so you can hear him. But here's an example of a conversation we'd have about something like seafood. And you'll hear all this tapping and typing in the background. And it will show you why I can't use audio like this. Because it's really annoying when other people are in the room. What is scarier, being lost in space or lost at sea? My affinity for the sea really was transformed after watching my octopus teacher. Because now I know that I can form, forge friendships. <laughs> Should I be lost at that sea? That wasn't a friendship. That was a, a 
courting. That was not a courting of yeah. man to octopus. <laughs> he was a predator. <laughs> the guy who befriended an octopus and cried when he, like, he honestly was, I think he was studying the octopi. If that was a high school girl, how would you feel about that documentary? And he went after school, left his family, Stop. went Stop. shopping with her at the mall. But I think the octopus was an adult. Was it a minor? They lived like three years. That's true. This is what's hard is sometimes fascination of any kind borders on erotica when you speak about it in great detail. Like, if with that logic, people could be like, you have the hots for Taylor Swift. I'm like, no, I think she's a brilliant lyricist. But when you speak about something with passion, it can be easily misconstrued. But to be fair, if my husband every day for what, seven years or whatever, I was like, oh, sorry, Greg can't come. He's playing with his octopus. I think it was only like one summer. <laughs> I don't watch stuff. Like I just kind of put it on. <laughs> it was like eight months. <laughs> But even if you were with your octopus friend for eight months, it is a little bit uncomfortable. It's Kate back in present time. <laughs> Such a dumb co- That was like the least interesting conversation I could possibly play. But instead of explaining it to you, I figured I'd play it. This is also, I was listening to the audio file. And then I st- we start talking about art as a conspiracy theory. And you can hear my uh, brain explode when I realized the literal origin of money laundering. Hold on one second. <laughs> so then why do people think art's like a money laundering scam? Because if their art comes up and somebody buys something for a million dollars and then some sultan in Dubai buys it for a billion dollars and they just accept a wire, like that money's now clean. But that's the whole point of money laundering is that you pay the taxes to clean it and so it's taxed, but it's clean. Is that why they call it laundering? Yeah, because they used to do it through laundromats. That's crazy. But what's crazier is I didn't realize the laundromat connection. I just thought because the money well, was clean. cleaning, yeah. But lo- like laundromats, places where it's like cash only and it's a tons of transactions that you'll never be able to trace. Huh. It's like mattress stores, really. What I assume goes on to mattress stores. Yeah, no, that's drugs. You honestly think so? Mm-hmm. Why? Because they're gigantic and hollow, and nobody ever checks inventory of mattress stores. Have you ever seen anybody going in or out of a mattress store? And there's five on every corner. Hot take from Greg about mattress stores. It's just, it's kind of funny to listen to a passing conversation that's recorded. I have so many like hours of nonsense that I need to go through at some point. But um, it's one of those things where I actually like when he's in the room and I can like work off of him, but he's like doing something else and it, it I, I need complete silence. It's hard to exist amongst the chaos of um, him and the dog. But anyway, fun question. Hi, Kate. I'm a listener who lives here in Chicago, and you keep me company while I live alone uh, during these winter months. I'm going to try to keep this short, but I'm really excited to be doing a Kate Lila because I loved Delilah when I was younger. Um, But I have a friendship question for you, and I feel like you're amazing at answering these. So hopefully you can provide some insight if you listen to this. Um, 
or another one of your stories can hopefully provide me some advice. But I have a friend from college who has been, we called each other best friends ever since sophomore year, you know, like 19 years old. Um, and now we're 23, 24. Um, and this is so really young, but a few years out of college, both in master's program. And we've kind of grown apart. So we both started dating people like a year into our friendship in college. Mine broke up like two years ago now. Um, it was like a two-year relationship. And hers is still going strong, which is great for her. But when I broke up with my partner, I realized I need to prioritize female friendships. I did not do that enough. In my college years, I really only had a few friends to show for, which I'm really close to and I'm grateful for. But it really had a renewed emphasis for me on my female friends. My ladies are like the most important friendships and relationships in my life. And I feel like she doesn't realize that importance. Um, and she kind of doesn't treat me super nice or she won't ever like be there for me. Like I had two deaths in my family early in quarantine and she wasn't there for me. Uh, she really only cares about her partner, which has been really hard for me. And I think a specifically hard part is that she always says, I'm her best friend. I'm going to be her maid of honor at her wedding, all this stuff. But for me, that feels like a lot of, like, talk, but no action. Like, she doesn't act like a great friend. I'm wondering if you had any of these friendships when you were younger, of people who are like, oh, my God, you're my best friend. We'll be in each other's bridal parties. But then, so it's hard to let go of that friendship because you feel like, you both are close, but you feel like there's some kind of disconnect. I don't know if I'm explaining this well, but basically, like, how do you move on with female friendships or strengthen them as you're going through your mid-20s when there's this kind of disconnect that you don't know how to convey to the other person because they're so involved in a relationship that, like, the importance of female friendships isn't there to them. Um so wondering if you have some advice. Well, you got cut off. Um, no, this is an interesting like angle on a f on friendship I don't know that I've talked about. Thank you for calling. And I, I hear what you're saying. I think that um, there's it, – it's an interesting thing that I feel like is maybe a life phase I've kind of grown out of. But I definitely remember in terms of when you're younger – Labeling friendships or almost like branding them as being a best friendship <laughs> is such a thing and such a level people get to um, that it's really fun to be part of a duo that's like a quote unquote best friendship. And you talk about your future and your weddings and your kids and, you know, you're in this uh, phase of life, be it college or otherwise, where um, companionship is spoon fed to you by having so many default similarities whether it's your college, your university, your job, or whatever thing you, it is you share, that's that's why you met. Um, something like a, there's a third party almost facilitating that you're in the same place, doing the same type of activities, and by default, you're just spending a large volume of time together. Beyond that, before you're working, before before you're in grad school, before you know, you move on with your life. When you're younger, you kind of have these hangout formats that expedite closeness and intensity in ways you can't in adulthood, uh, like pulling all-nighters together, studying together, like 
you know, going out to the, you know, last call and then passing out on somebody's futon and waking up to delirious laughter the next morning. Like there's so many, the, 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 the ways we can connect when we're in our youth, when we have time on our side and we are in the exact same life phase and we're physically in the same location, uh, fosters a type of friendship that I think is largely unattainable as adults that we do kind of have to let go of. And that, I think, is a hard part of going from your 20s to 30s is slowly but surely watching everybody move on with their lives and realizing it won't be the same. It do, it's not worse. It's just different. When people get partners, when people get married, when people have kids, your friendship dynamics do change. And this is hard. I think you're in an interesting circumstance where you had a partner and you didn't prioritize friendships. You're trying to improve upon that. But now seeing your alleged best friend kind of do the exact same thing. But actually, from listening to your question, what I'm hearing is it's not even that. Like, it's one thing, you know, I don't think it's really fair to critique her of like, you do or you don't prioritize female friendships. I, I think that like objective critique isn't really even applicable to this situation. Because the bigger, more important thing is you saying, um, she doesn't treat you super nicely. And she only cares about her partner. You had two deaths in the family and she didn't support you. I think you kind of know your answer in terms of like, you're on the outs of this friendship. It's not giving you what you need. And I think you're trying to kind of critique it in a way that's like, well, she's cares too much about her partner, not enough about her friends. But I think the like really harsh truth here is she's not caring about you the way you need to be cared about. It's not about other female friends. It's not about anybody else. Uh, your friendship isn't about anybody else. It's about how it makes you feel, how you feel supported and what you're offering up. And is it being reciprocated, right? I have a lot of thoughts I need to organize. I think one thing that's always important to remember, like I think when uh, people go through things like you mentioned, experiencing deaths in your family or, you know, whatever hard times we fall on, I think that's when we will kind of start to notice patterns or obsess over the status of our friendships, because I think we're realizing the tough reality of like, you know, friendship, it, friendships aren't made and sustained by people that only show up when things are good. I think friendship is, you know, it it should be marked by there being an ease to your relationship. But I think the more notable aspect of genuine friendship is that they show up when times are hard. Anybody can be around you when things are breezy. Anybody can, uh, you know, make themselves available when they're in close proximity, you're doing the same things and when you're having fun and partying. Um, but it, it does take energy to take on somebody else's difficulty and grief and hard time. And it is a level of extra care and attention that I think the closest of friends have and direct towards you, not because they have to, but because like, think about the people you care about in your life. If you heard something wasn't going well, it would be like a, it would be like a reflex for you to reach out to them, for you to worry about them. And I think that uh, over time, we experience the disappointment of people who don't have our best interest as a natural reflex because we as as friends aren't necessarily extensions of, of who they are anymore. And I don't I know I don't want to project onto your situation or make it seem overly harsh, but I think when we sense disconnects like that, it's probably happening and it's okay. I, I, your friendships in your 20s and beyond are inherently difficult because everyone's at a vastly different life phase. I had a best friend who had a kid before I like learned how to scramble eggs. Like I'm just, a, I'm delayed in everything about my life. And, uh, I think I've more recently felt the, uh, the, 
uh, reality of like how different things are when people have kids, for example, and how I feel like so stunted and behind and like understandably, I'm just not as top of mind as somebody who has a kid. Like there, as we talked about with Childless Millennial and Matrescence and all of that, like that was very eye-opening for me in terms of like the chemical transformation people, my friends are undergoing that I don't understand. And what's interesting too is like life phase can kind of override that natural reflex. I'm worried about and care about my friends all the time. But when they're in life phases that I don't really get, I have trouble knowing what to say. I have trouble knowing how to relate. And I notice over time, I will be closer to some people than others. And it's so often more of a function of uh, where we are in our lives than like our interest in wanting to maintain the friendship. Because I just think the reality is you pay the most attention to the people that you're around the most and that are the most delved into your everyday life. And um, your friends in college, if you move away or your friends from home are, are a function of your effort at that point and not a function of your proximity. And if she's with her partner all the time and you're not as close anymore and you've been needing her and she hasn't been showing up, I mean, it's one of those things where I don't think it needs to be a formal severing of ties. I don't think it needs to be called out. I don't think you even need to give her feedback. Like, I think that if something is burning out, you kind of just let it and it might swing back. I think the thing with friendships is for me, some of my like very close friends, it's it's less of a fire that I need to maintain and constantly put like sticks and poke and put paper in to just like keep some sort of thing kindled. Uh, you know how sometimes it, keeping people's interest or engagement with you, maintaining something you're not getting a lot out of feels like so much high effort just to keep it alive. Um, I kind of feel like my close friendships, it's more of like I have a constant pilot light lit. And when they come around, I can turn it up and we're as close and warm and you know, it's functional as ever. Um, but when they leave and when I'm back in my own life, I can turn it down and I'm not as blazingly involved in their life, but I still have that baseline ability to ignite at any given point because we have such a strong foundation. We have such an automatic, I guess, in this metaphor, like gas line of ease of a relationship and care for one another that, you know, you, you turn it on, you crank it up, you pick up right where you left off and you're burning as bright as ever, even though you're not burning that bright constantly. Um, I think that, I don't know, it's, it's a tricky thing that I know it's not like easy to hear, but I think you have to be okay without growing some friendships. You have to be okay with periods or seasons of life where you're not as close, but then be open to picking them right back up. You never really know what's going on in somebody's life. And I think after the fact, I've realized people were in unhappy relationships or were really low or had things going on behind the scenes I wasn't aware of. And as much as you'd hope they'd confide in you as a friend, if there's a disconnect happening, they probably sense it too. And I just think that we don't need to have these like formal fallings out and arguments and like, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm just not a person that like burns bridges or wants to have formal conversations about the state of my friendship, as long as I'm not being treated like overly poorly. Um, but rather let things take their course and let time kind of time and circumstance dictate, uh, where my interest should lie. And I think you pay attention to how people treat you and, um, there will come a point where she'll probably reach out and need you and want to talk and blah, blah, blah. And you can decide what you want to do at that point. For me, even if I feel like I've been kind of burned, I still like to maintain touch with people and I still like to extend to them what I would hope they'd extend to me. And it doesn't always need to be this big, bitter thing. Um, but I think that it's important, you know, that this happens to a lot of people and sometimes people are more caught up in their partners. And I think that, uh, 
it's one of those things where I have to remind myself, like when I first started dating mine, I was the same way. I do the same thing. And I remember feeling like annoyed because I wanted to hang out with Greg all the time. And I had been the single friend my whole life. And then I kind of got flack and was having trouble making friends for like not being single. And then I'm like, I waited this whole time to have a partner to be obsessed with while all of you hung out with your boyfriends my whole life. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I don't know. I, I think that, uh, you know, you deserve people who support you the way you want to be supported and the way you're providing. And if this friend's not doing that right now, they're doing their own thing. You do your own thing. I, 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 I don't see a ton of value in like making it a whole thing to the point where, I, I just in life, I think sometimes when you call attention to things like you don't do this for me or pay as much attention to me or hang out with me or whatever anymore, it makes the other person anxious. And then you become somewhat of a chore and a source of anxiety and obligation. And I just like to live my life never feeling like anybody around me feels like they have to be doing something to be in good graces with me. I want to surround myself with people that actually care about me, that I don't have to force into paying attention to what I'm doing or, or being involved with my life. And um, I think that that's where this label of best friends, the, the BFF gets a little bit confusing because it's fun to be inside of one of those, the, the, those labeled branded best friendships. And it's so hard while you're in it to imagine things being any different. And when, once you've already verbally established the contract of you'll be in my wedding, you'll be here and there in my life. Like that, I don't know if you listened to my bride tribe episode where I told people's bridesmaid stories, but so much of it was like people feeling like they had to have childhood friends that they had grown apart from or weren't as close to anymore or didn't weren't that similar to anymore. Feeling like they had to have them in their wedding and their childhood friends being really bitter and rude toward their new friends and it like really affecting things. And I mean, just like any relationship, some friendships stand the test of time. Some serve you in a phase of life. I, I just this is why I think like in, for many people, marriage is a gamble too. what you look for in a boyfriend at 20 isn't the same of what you want in a husband at 35 isn't the same of what you want in a father at 40 isn't the same in what you want a late in life partner I, like it's in some work out and some people grow together and some people grow apart. And those really are the two things that can happen in any sort of relationship. And I think that growing apart is something people are scared of and they force it to not happen. But I think you're better off letting things run their course and you being a willing participant if and when the other person engages, but don't waste your time and energy putting more into it than you're giving back. I think it's like an acceptance of how things kind of do change over time. And if you're not being treated well, like that really sucks. Maybe you give them the benefit of the doubt that there's more going on, or maybe you're just not really aligned right now and that's okay. Um, but it is hard when you're labeled as best friends and you like somebody's not treating you like their best friend, it still calls you their best friend. And that's like a funny thing that women do, uh, throughout their whole lives. Like it's fun when you get to like best friend status or you have like a girl group. I did an episode where I talked about the, the friend group names people gave themselves in high school. Like we love to brand things. But like, I don't think you need to overthink the best friend title. I would still call somebody that I talk to maybe once a year that I, you know, like met on the street every day of my childhood, one of my best friends, because I've known them for the longest and I'll love them forever. But we, we are physically very far away from each other and check in now and again, but our lives just diverted. Um, if and when she gets married to her partner and if you're in her wedding, great. When you get married, if you want her in your wedding, great. But like, don't worry about it. I, I, the bridesmaid thing is so funny. Like people put a lot of stock into 
who they are and being there at this big moment. Like I didn't have bridesmaids, which probably seems like a red flag for me not having friends, but I had a destination wedding. And literally, if you were going to come all that way and spend all that money to see me get married, you were probably one of my best friends anyway. And we had 73 people there. And Greg and I looked around and we were like, these are the people that would be in our bridal party probably and their partners. And then like family and friends like that were kind of additional. And that was really special. But I wanted, I don't know, my idea of friendship is my friend wanting me to look and feel my best and be on my own time. So I let people wear what they want to wear and show up when they wanted to show up. <laughs> but that's my style. I, uh, I know that that's not for everybody and a lot of people, especially if you've been a bridesmaid a lot, you like dream of having that support in the floral robes. And like, I get it. Uh, but man, I also think like, it's only as serious as you let it be. It only means what you define it as. And um, when that time comes, you can worry about it then and decide if it's right for you. And I just, I, st I still believe, I think I said this in the uh, wedding episode, like, I just, I don't know. I I'm just, I would never, ever make it a thing if somebody didn't put me in their wedding and I thought I deserved to be there. I would never, ever make it a thing if, like, I thought I should be made of honor and I was just a bridesmaid. I would never, ever make somebody else's major life milestone about me. And anybody that were to do that to me would be everything I needed to know about if I wanted to sustain the friendship long term. Uh, I just don't have a lot of tolerance for, like, petty behavior. I don't have a lot of tolerance for, like, bridesmaidy type labeling and hierarchy of friendships. And um, I, I just, I don't know. I, I think that I've... I don't ever like have fallings out or make it a big thing, but I kind of lead my life and move on in a way that weeds out people that I do and don't want. And I think that I've got some really long-term healthy friendships that mean a ton to me, but most of my friends are married and relationships have kids now, and we're all pretty caught up in our own lives. And I feel like our relationships at a point of maturity, not like of like, we're so mature, but I mean like literal duration and maturity um, where we're so far past taking inventory of like who's done what, who's sent what, who's been there when. And like we've just pop in and out of each other's lives, go on trips, attend each other's functions, send cards, you know, like it's just kind of easy. And I just think that the th over time, the older I got, the busier I got, the more I realized if it's not easy and if it's not reciprocated and supportive and if I'm overthinking like labels and, and will I or won't I be in their wedding and like the politics of friendship I just don't think over the course of my life that's the type of tension or those are the type of questions I want to have um so I just let myself kind of move on and I'll keep in touch and meet up with people and that doesn't need to be weird uh but I think that like sometimes when people overcompensate with like the best friend title and stuff too or reminding you of being in their wedding or blah 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 it's just kind of like I think that they'd probably feel like guilty or anxious knowing that they're not doing enough or whatever. So I don't know. I know this is terrible advice. Just like let it run its course. Think about what you what really makes you feel good and what really makes you feel supported. And um, try to th not think about the title of best friends or the uh, conversations you've had about at what points you'll be in each other's life so much as you adapt and evolve to who you are now, where your life is now. And things don't remain static if we change. Our friendships have to evolve too. And whether it's a pilot light you can ignite with ease at your leisure, or if it feels like a painstaking fire you have to poke at and keep warm to just kindle the smallest of flame of interest, listen to that. And um, above all else, like I think sometimes the friendships that serve us at certain points in our life are really exciting and fun and specific to our life phase. And that's kind of hard to let go. 
And I was just looking up. I'm like, why do I feel like whenever I hear myself say an analogy or metaphor, I'm always wondering, like, did I get that from somewhere? Because I don't want (laughs) to be like Rachel Hollis plagiarizing. But I have like a um, I don't know. I don't know what the term is. But like if I hear something I like, I store it. But I have trouble finding the source. Anyways, I couldn't find the pilot light thing. But then I saw somebody wrote on I love Cora wrote this and I thought it was kind of beautiful. It said, I've always thought of the ideal friendship as being like water. It's healthy and nourishing. It's clear and transparent. It's pure and unpolluted. It's pleasant without being addictive or intoxicating. Perfect friendship is only possible between friends who love each other for their own sake and not for mere pleasure or profit. Water is like this, simple and genuine. It may be tasteless and boring, but it symbolizes a sincere and wholesome friendship built upon reciprocal goodwill, no strings attached. Imperfect friendships are like sugary or alcoholic drinks, sweet and stimulating at first, but in the end shallow, gaudy, and harmful in large quantities. There's no substance behind these friendships, friendships only noise. Be like water, my friend. That's just like some guy. I think his name was like George, just like a random Quora person. Um, I thought that's kind of an interesting way to think about it in terms of like something consistent and pure and nourishing that you need to live that isn't always going to be like the most exciting, (laughs) intoxicating thing, but is the thing you need the most when you're dying of thirst, when you're in trouble, when you're hung over from the things that intoxicated you, like the thing that you know is best for you. It's, it's, It's not perfect, but it's interesting. Um, but I think about that with like, when you go through really fun phases of life, when you have like party friends or work friends or friends that serve a really specific purpose in your life, sometimes it's hard to realize that they were really helpful and value added in that context. That's not to say they can't be in other phases, but that just letting yourself grow apart and away from that, um, you know, so that some stuff is more surface at times. But anyway, you get it. I I don't know if I'm being helpful. I'm this is where I'm officially rambling. I could talk about friendships forever, but uh, I think that you are on the right track being attentive to your needs and knowing that you're not getting uh, what you probably deserve as a friend. And it's confusing when somebody puts that title on it. But as much as you can kind of strip that away and not worry about what the friendship is branded and focus on the relationship for what it is, not the idea of what it should be. I think you're better off approaching life that way. And it doesn't need to be a big dramatic thing. Just move forward, paying attention to the amount of care and attention that is paid to you and do the same to the other person. And should your paths cross again, amazing. And should they divert, you still had a very beautiful friendship that served a very important transformative phase of your life. And you'll always think of each other very fondly. And I'm sure be pleasant toward one another regardless. And that's the great part about not making it always into a huge thing and letting yourself evolve with the new friends you're close to in your life. I think like you just inevitably are going to have a handful of people in your circle, depending on where you live and what you're doing. And I think that's awesome. I love meeting my friends, new friends. Uh, I have like I feel like in the past two years, I've made close friends in Chicago that I didn't have before that are the people that like know the most about my life right now because I see them the most. I'm very much, I think, my love language is words of affirmation, shocking. Um, But I think I'm very quality time. I have, I do have trouble keeping touch with people I don't physically see that much. And COVID, that has been crazy with COVID. And I think we're all so bummed out in so many levels. It's kind of hard to catch up because it's like, you are having a conversation with Debbie Downer, but then, you know, you can kind of laugh about it. But I just feel like my catch up sessions are like, hi. (laughs) We're all struggling. I look forward to when we can all, uh, you know, enjoy friendships in person again, especially for people like me that are shitty phone talkers. Anyway, love you the most. Hang in there. Be like water.
Hi, Kate. I have been wondering what it's like to live in a big city and go grocery shopping. I've only lived in the south, and we don't really have cities that are walkable. So even if you live downtown, you have a car and you drive out to a grocery store. But where do you go grocery shopping in Chicago? Do you walk down the street to just a little farmer's market, or is there an actual grocery store down the street? And then you have to carry all your groceries back. Or does everyone just go to Trader Joe's every day and get what they're going to eat for the day? How does this work? Please clue me in. <laughs> this made me laugh. Um, you make my life sound a lot more like romantic and cool and like Parisian than it is. Um, but yeah, I, it is kind of interesting. Like I don't, I think that I live, my life's so normal to me, but I forget that it's very different to other people than other people's because even though like in my head growing up, you saw depictions of people living in cities. It always was like, oh, there, there's like some, you know, trope of them being like more sophisticated or ahead of those in rural areas. But like, I disagree. I think that I as a city person am remarkably stunted because I have to rely on third party services to do almost anything. And as I've gotten busy in life, I've learned to outsource to an almost problematic level of efficiency that I don't think is possible in many markets or more rural or suburban areas. And I have deep, deep concerns about myself living and being able to live in a suburb slash um, what to do if I ever have children. Uh, but guess combo for a different day, because, yeah, I haven't had a car since 2009 by choice. I could buy one if I wanted, but. I literally never sit here and think, I wish I had a car because I just don't need one. And um, I've lived only in cities since I graduated college. So I went from Blacksburg, Virginia to New York to San Francisco to Chicago. My husband doesn't have a car. We, um, But when you think about what I save on gas, on car insurance and on car payments, I make up for and what I spend on Ubers and on like DoorDash and Postmates. Uh, I think that I use a disproportionate amount of services like that because I don't have a lot of those types of expenses that come with the convenience of a car, right? Um, and Instacart, for example. So for food, I Instacart big stuff from Costco. I'll do like a Costco delivery every so often um, where somebody brings it to my apartment and that stuff. And again, think of this outside of the context of COVID because some of the stuff I do and don't do because of the times we're in. But normally... Um, Instacart brings heavy stuff that I can't carry or it doesn't make sense for me to do multiple trips in like an Uber, like paper towels, toilet paper, trash bags, heavy liquids, Diet Cokes, a uh, big fan of their uh, rotisserie, chicken noodle soup, among other things. And then I will do like maybe mm, every few weeks an Instacart delivery from like a place like Mariano's or Whole Foods with stuff like lunch meat and, you know, just basic like staples. But day to day, yeah, I guess it's kind of uh, not European, that makes it sound like classy, but I, I that's the only thing I can compare it to where, yeah, it is, even though I'm not going to small markets, I do kind of pick up what I need that day or for the next two or three days. And I go to grocery stores like all the time, but I also edit a ton of audio and I'm always walking and listening. So I'll go shopping and pick up a few things here and there, some charcuterie or a snack or whatever. I just kind of will pick things up here and there to last me the next few days. I have a huge bag. The side, It's like meant for dry cleaning, but it's this canvas bag I take to like Trader Joe's and I have to like sling it over my shoulder like Santa Claus and it's given me back problems because I'll try to carry too much. Um, but yeah, I can only shop for what I can carry or I have to Instacart it. It's basically the bottom line. And I do both. Uh, but 
that said, I we get takeout and delivery a lot, and that's something that's changed with COVID. I don't know. I, I just have concerns for myself moving forward in life. I think the, the biggest problem was when I – that period of time when I had two jobs and I was doing – my corporate job and be there and five the mat business. I had no time and I had to outsource everything. And I was like down to the hour having to be pretty efficient with what I was doing. And I uh, learned to kind of hire out help for everything. And cities have like resources like this and the gig economy makes it possible. Like I will, I remember one morning I like took an Uber to pick up something from a supplier. And while I was doing that, I placed an Instacart grocery order and I came home and I had a task grab it, come and help me rake leaves in the back. And like, I was, I was, this was in maybe 2017 or something. I forget. But like, I, I will be efficient and maximize the use of hired help. If I can get something done quickly that I would agonize over and draw out over hours or days. It's, I think life is a big time and money trade off and Sometimes you have more of one than the other, and then you have to spend more of one to get the other. And I, yeah, I, that was a valuable time for me. And the, on the one hand, I joke that I'm stunted, but I think I also really learned that people do hate doing stuff that they could probably afford to outsource or have somebody else take care of, and then they could be supporting another person's livelihood as well. Um, and take something off their plate and have more quality time or put more time toward the thing they want to do. And that like, I just, I don't think people always understand how valuable their time is um, and how many people are willing to do a lot of random ass tasks that like could make your life a lot easier. And I'm not talking like FU money. I don't have FU money. Anyways, I think when you work for yourself, you learn very quickly that just because you can do something yourself doesn't mean you should. And the way you view time and money is so overhauled and everything becomes a trade-off. I, I don't mean to seem like somebody who has like, I, I feel like a lot of people don't acknowledge the ways in which they have help and the, the that being an aspect of a baseline privilege that enables them to do something. And that's like a frustrating thing. I like when I watch people who have tons of kids and run their own business and stuff, I'm like, how, 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 how are you doing this? It, I rack my brain because I just do not understand how there are enough hours in the day. And I, I obviously people aren't disclosing how much help they have. I don't have like constant round the clock help. That's not what I mean at all. What I mean is like when you own your own business and you work for yourself, the way you view time is completely overhauled because nobody else is going to do my work. Nobody else is going to make me money. And any time I take away from making from doing work or making my own money is time I'm just going to have to make up for. Uh, so I really think hard about the where I spend my time. And if it's to a task that is a drain of time that I can't uniquely add value to and doesn't bring me joy that somebody else can do much faster for a fee, I'll pick faster for a fee. And again, not trying to sound like out of touch, rather, I think people that work for themselves would agree. Uh, there's there's just no separation of your life, your personal life and your professional life when you're self-employed and you have to take opportunities like the amount of time it would take you to grocery shop and consider that in how it takes away from the other stuff you're doing and what actually makes you money and propels you forward, like if you want to make it. And that sounds crazy, but this isn't relevant to the question, but I will say I feel this way too about um, moving. I mean... My family is, I've never, I've not lived drivable to them in adult life. Greg's family is like five-ish hours away. We've had to just do a lot of stuff ourselves. And I think people get a lot of help like moving and with small tasks around the house and this and that. But like, we've had to figure out stuff ourselves and and he works and travels a lot. So like, I'm often, I, over the past decade, I've been 
countless times trying to figure out how to move a heavy thing or an entire apartment or get myself from A to B or be able to do 12 things at once just by myself. I've, I've, I fully moved our entire apartment, like packed it and moved it while Greg's been at work and been like, hey, I just moved us today. Um, because like, I don't know, I have my process. I like to hire people. I think it's really under leveraged to use packing services. Um, you can find it pretty affordably. And if you, again, look at things as a trade-off of time or money and the time you would agonize packing versus paying somebody else to pack up your apartment same day and move it again, I don't have a lot of stuff for kids. This is what I mean. I'm stunted. Like I just, I don't have that much stuff. Uh, when you move a lot, you get rid of a lot of stuff. And I just, I, I, I don't know. I just don't think I'm a normal person at this point. And I don't understand how um, people live. And I, and I fear this for my future. <laughs> I am utterly unequipped to function in a suburb. I hope I would adapt. I'm scared of driving. A lot of my friends that don't have cars are too. I think over time you're like, wow, it's actually, I've spent more of, way more of my life not driving. I only drove from the age, ages of 16 to 21. <laughs> and now I'm 33. So of all of my life, I've spent the tiniest percentage with a car or behind the wheel. And I, I just legitimately have less driving experience than other people. And I think it's a, a muscle you need to exercise and like do more often. Like my husband still drives a lot for work and he drives whenever we go to and from his parents' place. Um, but like, I just never do. And I have nightmares a lot about driving. Um, it's kind of a, been a, come a funny anxiety that is a problem that I do need to figure out. Cause I'm like, if I had a kid, would we like take an Uber to the hospital? Like, what do people do? <laughs> would we get a zip car? Like, I don't know. I assume at that point, I'd just be like, can we just buy a car? But then the city, like paying for parking is actually a small fortune for something we would never use. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Um, anyway, guys, next question. Hi, Kate. I'll use a friend's name and say, this is Ella. Um, I just wanted to talk to you about pandemic dating and uh, kind of how it affects my family, particularly my relationship with my brother. So he's 32. He's three years older than me. We both live in D.C. I actually moved back here from another major city right before the pandemic, and I had a job lined up that actually fell through, and I got kind of depressed during the pandemic like a lot of people, uh, but just in the last few months, I've kind of pulled myself out of that. I'm searching for jobs, and I'm trying to date, uh, socially distance, of course, I only eat outside at restaurants that are fully outside, not the tent type of thing. Uh, not that I'm hating on anyone who's doing that, just my comfort level. And I lean on my brother for a lot of advice and everything. Um, but lately, he's just been, like, so negative toward everything we talk about. And I started dating a guy that I really liked, but this guy – uh, doesn't have a job either, although he's going to interviews, and he had a big corporate job that he was laid off of uh, because of the pandemic, and it's going great, and I really like him, but my brother is just so on me about, like, well, you know, he doesn't have a job, and you need to find a husband uh, with security, and it's all this, like, society tells you. Society tells you you need to be looking harder for a job. Society tells you, you need to find a husband. You're 29. You know, your clock is ticking. This is, 
this is a time and I look up to him so much but when I push back on it he gets very defensive and just really this whole you know society tells you you need to do this sort of thing is just not helpful and I just kind of wanted some tips maybe uh, to how to talk to him, how to get through to him to show him that, you know, hey, I am trying to do this. Uh, it's not as easy as you think. You know, he's married. He is a lawyer at a big firm here in D.C. Like, and I just think it's harder for people coming from that perspective to understand uh, people that are in my position but, um, yeah, like, even since we were kids, I always looked up to him and valued his opinion so much that it's hard to not let it affect me. And I know you talked about this on an episode not too long ago, but I just, uh, yeah. Oh, you got cut off. Um, thank you for calling in. This is a good probably last question. Uh, I felt a lot of feelings listening to that voicemail. Um, okay. <laughs> First of all, part of growing up is realizing that people, you can consult people for their opinions about what you should do with their life, your life, but they do not manage you. They do not have control nor the ability or right to dictate what you do with your life. And you can value your opinion, sorry, value their opinion, um, but you do not have to take it. You do not have to put a lot of stock into it. And if the relationship becomes contentious to the point where they're giving you an opinion you aren't taking, you over time learn something called omission. I think that people put so much stock into what the immediate people in their life think of their decisions. But if you're happy and if you like the person, if he's working toward getting a job and you know the truth, you stick with what you know and not what with your brother says. I am such a broken record, but you have to make decisions for your life. If you don't, you are the only one that loses. That person will still be a lawyer and still have their family and still be living with their decisions. And you have to live with yours. And it's uncomfortable when people don't agree with you or your decisions. But that's part of growing up is having to say, this is what's right for me anyway. And saying, thank you for your opinion. Good for you, not for me. Ironically, that is a statement I learned from my brother. Um, I have a brother, too. He's wonderful. He also is an attorney and has a family in his own life. He doesn't really give me his input on my life decisions, but I also don't ask for them because I'm going to do what I want anyway. And honestly, I don't think it's time for me to ask uh, what I should do with my life. Uh, but to be fair, he's been very helpful to me in many occasions and given me a lot of free legal advice to which I am deeply indebted. Um, and actually it's funny. I don't talk about my brother a lot, but he's very funny. And I think I get a lot of my sense of humor from observing him throughout life. Uh, and he's wonderful. I wish I could have him on the podcast at some point, but I try not to impose, uh, this public forum on my private, uh, loved ones, <laughs> uh, unless they volunteer. But anyway, um, I think that like, I get what you're saying, and I get that you care about his opinion, and you kept bringing up how he cares what society says, and I think that this is just a difference that exists within some people. This is where I think stuff like the Enneagram can be helpful um, in kind of identifying the metrics that you hold yourself, that you measure yourself against in life. Everyone's metrics are very different. Some people are very held up on like get, getting married, having a stable job, having a kid, blah, 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 of these like benchmarks of, of age and where you should be with your life. No one tells you that once you get into life, you're not spoon fed an ideal spouse. Not everybody is an easy time having children. Not everybody wants children, nor should they feel like they have to. 
careers take a long ass time to build and you if your career isn't working out for you you should be able to pivot and move on and evolve picking your job when you're 18 like that's it's so crazy my sister and i just did a long patreon kind of where we talked about something very similarly i'm starting to talk loudly to talk over tugboat snoring hey sweetie love you you are so so loud <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> my my tugboat voice is annoying um but yeah, so my sister is very driven by external metrics. Um, I'm very driven by internal purpose. And I think that the way we approached our lives and careers, it is evident against those. And we both have had upsides and downfalls due to that. I think I struggle a lot more with my own self-satisfaction and mental health because like, I'm never that self-satisfied. I both need to feel good about myself and feel this deep sense of purpose while also having these highly flexible not real metrics that are self-sabotaging because I raise my own bar and I'm always so disappointed in myself. And if I'm my own boss, I'm never going to think I'm that great. So my boss is a huge bitch that never rewards me or tells me I'm doing well because I'm her. <laughs> Whereas my sister, like she very much approached her life. Like I took a career aptitude test. It said this, I will do this thing. And then she got to doing that thing and it like wasn't working out and it wasn't for her. And then she was like, what do I do? And then she spent the better part of the past decade pivoting out of a straightforward career like teaching um, and has been trying to find her footing. And it's been a really interesting path. Again, I bring that up because we had a two hour conversation about our career and life path decisions on patreon.com slash be there in five. It's just where I put more personal conversations and bonus episodes. It's two dollars and ninety five cents a month. And anyway, I just think that I I feel very strongly that there's no wrong way to be, but that people that project the way they are under other people need to understand that not everybody's the same and not everybody's operating against the same standards and metrics. And you have to let, you have to be flexible with what brings people value in their lives. You have to be flexible with allowing people to pivot and change and evolve if things aren't working for them. And above all else, when you're two adults and you're giving somebody advice, as long as it's not to the other person's harm or detriment, you have to let them make their own decisions and mistakes. And I assume that if he loves you, he would do the exact same and is willing to give you more leeway than maybe you perceive as his younger sister. Um, but I just, I, I really, it, I guess that like when I think about that whole society argument, it upsets me because um, I think uh, while for some people, who are valued in that way, you know, you get good grades, you go to some sort of school or higher edu education or on some path that leads you to a super specific job or trade, you do that thing, you have a family, like that works for some people, but not for everybody. And it doesn't have to. And I think that it's so unfair because like, it's really hard to find the right person. It's really hard to have a child and to be able to not only conceive one, but to uh, even afford to have a family at a certain point in your life in a way that you're comfortable. It's really hard that women have to take time off of work and make it work to have a kid. And our country doesn't support women the way they should to make that possible and to make providing an equal opportunity for both the man and woman should they want to have children. I get worked up during these conversations because we have enough working against us. It is so hard if anybody ever makes you feel like you're falling short for not finding a partner in a certain amount of time, for not having the job you should in a certain amount of time, for not having a child in a certain amount of time, I don't care what it is. We have so much working against us. Life is complicated. Life is hard. The straightforward narrative you're spoon-fed does not come true. And the sooner you can be comfortable adapting and being flexible to the things that do not meet your expectations and make them work for you and what you want to extract in this short life, that's amazing. And the longer you spend trying to shove your 
yourself into this formula that works for other people that people will project onto you that the world wants you to think you have to fit in and you're realizing it's a square peg in a round hole and you're just like driving yourself insane trying to make something into what it's not like you're only going to lose we, we have to go easy on ourselves. We have to realize things are not that straightforward. We have to abandon these metrics of success that we think matter because they don't. They don't. They don't. You know what's best for you. And you may do things that are not best for you. But you know who's going to have to learn the consequences of those things? You. And you know who's going to have to experience those things to probably believe that those consequences are bad enough to not do it again? You. Because when people tell me bad things are going to happen in theory, it's in theory. And when I actually make mistakes and things happen to me, I feel them. And I make sure I don't make them again. And I, I love the input and consultation of others. And I, I use it all the time. But there comes a point when you have to live your own GD life. And other people that love you and support you have to be okay with it. And the people that really belong in your life and that are bringing you value and adding to it should understand that. And are there some people that we can love that are not very flexible in understanding and are pretty rigid? Yes. But that's where omission comes in. That's where we don't bring them into everything. And that's where we realize we are different from them. And being different doesn't mean we're wrong. Being younger doesn't mean we're more naive or stupid. And having different experiences doesn't make one person's more valuable than the others. And I want you to make sure that you are not breaking up with somebody that you love that is good for you that just doesn't have a freaking job that'll get a job eventually. Are you kidding me? You know how many people don't have jobs right now? We are living in a pandemic. We we're we've lived in a politically in political turmoil that that is unprecedented for the past several years with our past administration. We're we don't even know what's on the horizon with vaccines, with the with the pandemic, with the economic downturn, with the tail of it we haven't even seen yet. The times are tough. The quality people are slim. The way we find them is limited. And you have to do whatever the hell it is you want to do. And if you're happy now with this person, that's awesome. And when you're not happy, you leave and you find somebody better. And when he gets a job, that's awesome. And you celebrate the shit out of that because it's really hard in this climate. We can respect and love people that are different from us and that want different things for us without having to do everything they say. We can live our lives the way we want to and accept that we don't have control over everything that happens to us. And as much as other people want to think that things should be that straightforward, they have to understand that things that come straightforward to some people don't come straightforwardly to others. And also a lot of people that stay in their really straightforward situations are actually not happy and they have not opted to get themselves out of that situation and they've decided to stick with it. Not, I'm not saying personally to anybody that knows you. I just mean like, I think a lot of people romanticize people that got married and had kids young. I think a lot of people that got married and had kids young are maybe not in the right marriage. Just like maybe people that broke up with people too soon because they wanted something better maybe regret breaking up with that person. Life is a gamble. We don't, we, it is so hard to know the, if, if, if we made the right decision and all we can do is live with the outcome of that decision and move forward. And I just never want anybody in this difficult situation we're in, in this life we're living right now to let anybody make them feel worse about where they are, because I guarantee you, you're making yourself feel bad enough, even though you shouldn't. And you're doing the best you can to get yourself into an optimal position. So tell him less of the things that he's not going to respond well to and live your life more confidently, knowing that you are the only person that knows what's best for you. And families have dynamics and friendships have dynamics. And sometimes you feel like the less informed, less responsible, less knowledgeable person in your dynamic. But you have to snap out of that and realize you are so capable as you are with or without that person's input. And you can still love them as deeply as you do and appreciate them and respect them as deeply as you do. But acknowledge that there are boundaries when it comes to how much input they should have on your life. And if they can't accept that, there need to be boundaries about how much you tell them about your life. I need to breathe. 
it's an interesting thing where I know I talk about this so much, but like, um, I, I don't know. I, 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 like every time I guest on a podcast or do some sort of interview, I rethink about the way I position my life and career and think about like, if somebody's actually going to take this advice, how do I separate myself from my circumstances, my privilege? Like what's actually helpful? What's actually actionable? And I talked about before, like, my philosophy on getting B's and, and not being a perfectionist and letting myself try and fail and like that being okay. And, um, the different attributes I think that have like helped me throughout life. Uh, but one of the biggest things that I, th- I think to think about all the time is, um, you know, if somebody positions, uh, the things I've done as like stumbling into it or being lucky, I kind of I kind of laugh to myself um, because I think the overarching theme people forget is anything you do before it's successful is really embarrassing and is controversial and people have a lot of opinions about it and people change their tune once it works and everything I've ever done people have had a lot of opinions about until it worked but I've I've trained myself I've I've developed a tolerance to not overthinking the input of people that aren't my target market for the thing that I'm doing I've learned to respect the opinion of the people I love in my life that want the best for me to, but to know when I know better, I've, you know, been able to admit the mistakes I've definitely made when I probably should have listened to other people. But it frustrates me when it seems like I stumbled into something when actually I think I've had to overcome a lot of chatter and noise about how objectively embarrassing a lot of my career and life decisions are. And beyond embarrassing, like people just always had a lot to say about anything. Like, whether it was not getting engaged until after five years of dating or living together before marriage or getting married overseas with a small group and no wedding party or starting a doormat business or writing a book about social media or starting a podcast. Like these are things that people have a lot of opinions on that are really hard to not get in your head. And I know I am kind of redundant when I say you have to block out irrelevant noise and it's not to like offend people in your life as irrelevant, but rather understand that if your natural inclination desire interest skills whatever if you're drawn to something and if you want something and you're not doing something not because of your you've changed your mind but somebody else's input is impeding on your actions like you're going to be bitter or resentful toward them for dictating your choices when your own decision making and free will was the driving force of making a decision And I get frustrated when my contentment with my life is chalked up to perhaps me stumbling into things when I've actively worked to make tougher decisions that I felt were right for me. And I've and I've endured a lot of embarrassment and chatter and nothing that serious. But like, I just think that people you need to weather a level of discomfort with your reference group to do the things you want to do sometimes And I've weathered a lot of that discomfort and I'm happy with my life because of that, because I don't resent anybody for the choices I've made. I've made them all myself. And uh, I, I, I'm such a broken record about that because like, I think whenever I'm asked for my advice or input towards something, I can give you all the business tips I want. But at the end of the day, it's been a lot of keeping my head down, doing the work and making the thing happen before I let anybody else tell me it can't. And I want people to take that, not because I'm some shining example of success, but rather I, 
I, I'd be okay if I'm not because I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing because I, I know what's important to me and I'm not always able to communicate it well to other people. And I, I'm not always able to do what other people want for me um, because it's not authentic to what I feel like is what I should be doing. But that's okay. I, I can live with my choices. I can live with my mistakes because they're mine. And I want everybody else to be content with their own lives for better or for worse, not because they were forced into doing something or living a life that somebody else imagined or wanted for them, but because they're living the one that they want and that they've worked hard for. And that is just a fundamentally a work in progress. And if you're constantly seeking to improve and to do more, that's awesome. To be d devoted to self-improvement is noble in and of itself because you want to be better. You want to do better. You'll be, you might be constantly in a state of unrest, but at the very least you're growing and growing as progress. And to the people that have reached a destination where they've always wanted to get to, like, my God, that's what a self-improving person is always trying to get to that maybe doesn't realize their personality doesn't allow for. But that's so incredible that you were so satisfied with your life that you've gotten to a place that you ex wholly accept and embrace. Like, what a gift. I think some, for some of us, the destination is eternal progress. And for some of us, the destination might exist and the metrics might exist. And working toward that is really rewarding. But it's important to know thyself. And important to know if that's realistic for you. I think I'm a person that will always be seeking. And I'm okay with that. I think some people do have a more destination mentality. And some people realize when they get to destinations that, oh, wow, this is not how this works. Point being, life is complicated. Everything is different for everybody. And everybody has their own unique approach. And we need to go easier on each other's decisions. We need to go easier on ourselves. And for the love of God... Do not make anybody feel bad about where they are in their life as it relates to their career, their partner, or childbearing. These are three things that we are told when we are young we have control over that we have utterly no control over. And the second that we find ourselves forcing ourselves into any of these situations, it's not going to go well. Because many of these, the outcomes of these things are highly permanent. These are trying times. We're all doing the best we can. Have a glass of wine. Take an edible. Go hug your dog or child or partner, spouse or barefoot dreams blanket or bag of takeout or whatever the hell it is brings you joy in this life and makes you feel less alone because you are not alone. At the very least, I am here. And take a deep breath and it's going to be okay. You in this moment are okay. We're all going to be okay. I feel so badly when people are made to think that the high amounts of effort they're putting in everything they do all the time is not enough. It is enough. And it will materialize. Just maybe not in the time or way you think, but it will. And trust yourself. Trust that you are doing everything in your power to yield the life you want. And sometimes when it doesn't work the way you thought it was going to, it's not a function of you doing it wrong. It's a function of a lot of external circumstances that people don't tell you factor into the way your life manifests that, that, that there's so many more variable things in life than there are fixed and while the fixed are important and we need to love them and nurture them and not make them feel bad even if their decisions or their input is making us feel bad we need to figure out where we can be flexible and how we perceive their opinion or input uh because honestly if somebody's life has worked out for them in a pretty straightforward manner they don't really understand the scope of circumstance, the scope of things that can happen to you. Like it might just be a function of their lack of understanding because they've had it so good. 
And it sucks that you have to be the one amenable to that, but it's important to maintain that perspective that you're not the one that's wrong, right? Anyway, I gotta go. I love you guys. I'm sorry. I always get on a higher so at the end of the episode. But um, I just, I want everyone to... I just, I, I get worked up thinking, I'm like, man, people are going through, through hell. And like, if I'm in your ears... I'm not, I'm, I'm sure as hell not going to be another person telling you you're not doing enough because you are. And I want you to feel confident and capable because you are. It's really important to me. And I want you to wake up tomorrow or if this is the morning and you're on a run or whatever the hell it is you're doing, I want you to move forward being like, I got this. I'm fine. If that's the only thing I ever can do uh, in the mass amounts of words I reel off, like I, I just I hope that's what you would take away. Um, anyway, I love you. Hang in there. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Kate Lila. The hotline number is 312-379-9676. If you ever want to call in and ask a question. And, uh, if you want to share this episode with a friend, if you liked it, that'd be cool on your Instagram story at be there in five or subscribe to patreon.com slash be there in five for more in-depth discussions on these topics I've uh, mentioned Above all else, leaving a five-star review is the most helpful thing you can do because um, I get to see them and there's no real like direct feedback episode by episode. So it's hard for me to know what you guys think or what you like or what you want to see more of. So please always tell me. We're letting more people into the Facebook group soon. Be there in five totally casual, breezy Facebook group. You do have to answer all the questions and agree to the rules. And it does take a little bit of time, but we're doing it slowly but surely. And I guess that's it for me. I love you. Hang in there. As always, let me know your thoughts and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear.